We will now have our final message today by Mr. Matt Steele, entitled, A New Birth of Freedom. Hello again. So in the history of our great republic, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice sounded like a teenage boy. In the history of our great republic, we've seen some truly incredible things come to pass. We have seen and enjoyed the greatest expansion of personal freedom and liberty in the long and lamentable history of mankind. What we've experienced in the United States and maybe in a broader sense in the Western world is very, very rare in the history of mankind. And I think we can all understand that. As Thomas Jefferson said in his letter of the 12th of September, 1821, to John Adams, he said, the flames kindled on the 4th of July, 1776, have spread over too much of the globe to be extinguished by the feeble engines of despotism. And I would say for a good while that was true. For a while. The fires of 1776 did spread around the world. You just have to kind of look, even just amongst the English-speaking world, at what happened and the results of the American Revolution. And the, the shock wave it certainly sent all the way back to England and then out to the rest of its, its empire, which at that time was really pretty small. Even England was forced to restart the stalled engines of what we call ancient English liberties. It was forced to restart that because of the shock of the American Revolution. And also, of course, now the consequences of an English-speaking country across the other side of the Atlantic that English people could leave and become more free when they arrived on these shores. And so, it was a shock, and it was a fire that lit that great steam engine, as it were, of this march towards individual freedom, democracy, representative democracy that we have enjoyed today. It forged a new birth of freedom. But of course, we we know this, that the phrase that Abraham Lincoln coined much later. A new birth of freedom for all Englishmen and Englishwomen everywhere in later a growing empire. But it didn't stop there. I found an interesting article online that talked about, in spite of, obviously, all the um, evils, if you want to put it that way, or all the negative consequences of empire and imperialism, which, of course, there were many. What was left behind in so many countries was this idea of representative government, of individual freedom and, and liberty. And that has been a tremendous blessing to so many people. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it, 
I mean, the men and women that were experiencing the American Revolution, would they have had any thought in their mind that what they were doing there would change the face of the world? You know, that, that the, these battles at Lexington and Concord and Long Island and then finally in Yorktown would change history in such an amazing way. And yet, through God's grace, they did. And that's not to say that British or American imperialism, as I mentioned before, has always been a good thing. But through that flawed civilization, through our flawed civilization, there has been a birth of freedom and blessings of that freedom. Around the world, to, a, to an extent, that we, we do lament that there are so many places around the world that have not experienced that, have not achieved that, and we wish that they could. But it's remarkable that it went as far as it did when we look at history. And yet, we are on the cusp, perhaps, as some have called it, of what could be the greatest threat to this freedom that we enjoy, the greatest threat in our democratic history. They would say that they are even the greater, greater threats than the Soviet Union, or the war machines of, of the Third Reich, or the Empire of Japan. This threat is not coming from an external power, it's coming from within our own selves. It is coming within our own selves. There's a, there's a line that I, that I like from Shakespeare. There's a character called John of Gaunt in Shakespeare, and it's in Richard II. And he has this very poetic kind of deathbed lament, and it's all very dramatic. But there's a powerful line in the, there. He says, this England that was wont to conquer others has made a shameful conquest of itself. And I feel like that that's what we are doing in our society right now. We are tearing ourselves apart. And, I, you know, I suppose we could all say, well, it's a, you know, it's an election year. What do you expect? And that, that is certainly true. But if we think about the level of anxiety that is in the, in the world, not just our country, but in, in the world, and we're all affected by that. I mean, do you, are any of us feeling that anxiety? Anxiety about going out in public, going to the stores, wearing the masks, not wearing the masks, arguments over the masks, arguments over the disease, arguments about everything that we argue about in an election year times 50. And I'm tired of it. I think we all are tired of it. We want to get back to normalcy. But I'm not too sure we even know what normalcy is anymore. What is normalcy? What are we trying to get back to? It is my fervent hope that this election that is, uh, it's a Tuesday, right? Yeah. Man. It is my hope that it will go exactly like all other elections. That we will have either a peaceful transfer of power 
or a peaceful continuation of power, one or the other, at least on the, on the presidential level. But I think more than ever, there is a growing and not altogether unjustified concern amongst many people that we might be hurtling towards something not seen here since 1861, the start of the American Civil War. You know, even for some of us who have studied biblical prophecy, love biblical prophecy and really dig deep into its bones, it is difficult, I think we all have to admit, to understand when things really start. When have they started? Have they started now? Are we in the timeline? Is the clock running? Are we in the three and a half year period? Are we heading towards the day of the Lord? Have we hit all those markers? Or have we not? You know, Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars in all kinds of places. And of course, we're always centric around our own life, aren't we? And where we live. And so when wars come to where we live, well, it's got to be the end. But it may not be. It just be, may be part of the wars and rumors of wars. So how do we tell when all these things come to pass? And even more so, for those of us who might actually be living in the end days, whenever that happens, how will we know when we're there? And how far along in those, in those prophetic events will we be? But we can see from history. So the future is not clearly defined. And of course, that's not the purpose of prophecy, right? The purpose of prophecy is, as an old teacher of all of ours used to say, is to tell us what the future will be like unless we repent, unless we do something about it. So all we can look at is history. And we look at the history of Israel and Judah and what God warned about in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and many of the other prophets. And we can see how things came to pass, and sometimes how things didn't come to pass, because they actually have a future meaning. And yet it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you think about, I don't know, uh, the, the notion of the whole world bowing down to a beast power. And we see that in prophecy. That just seems crazy, doesn't it? How can the whole world get unified for five minutes on anything. And yet we have seen it in 2020. When the whole world has been unified around a pandemic and has, for the most part, followed the exact same protocols in every country around the world. All of a sudden, the notions of, of the whole world following after a certain belief system or set of principles now makes a lot more sense. And there's some religious aspects to, to those end time prophecies, but I think we've seen the way, the pattern, as it were. But take this other prophecy that 
again, you may look at it and you may say, how could this actually really happen? How is this really going to play out? And it's, in, it's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8. Uh, I think it's 8 through 14. But we'll, we'll look at 8 through 12. How could this be fulfilled? It says, the Lord sent a word against Jacob. And Jacob, a term, right, for, for Israel. But it's not the good Israel. It's the backsliding, shyster Israel. Right? It's the sinful Israel. And that's why God throws in Jacob in there. And it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in the pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild them with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spare his enemies on. The, Assyrian, the Syrians before, the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. Now, how could, how could we envision that happening? How could we envision a people who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones? Brian, could you play that video for us? There is audio in it. Anybody good at mouth reading? Mouth reading? Okay. All right. Well, do anybody recognize that guy? You remember that guy? Senator Tom Daschle. He's standing there on the floor of the Senate on September 12th, 2001. You guys remember watching him on that day? Did you scream at the television like I did? Because in this speech, some staffer ran out and said, oh, we need a scripture about bricks falling down. In this speech, he said these words. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. He said that. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. You got it? All right. Dramatic effect. With cedars. The bricks have fallen down. That is what we will do. But we will rebuild with dress we rebuild. And we will recover. The fig trees have been felled. The people of America. But we will replace them. We stand them. strong together with cedars. Because the people of America have always That is what we will together. do. We will and rebuild. Those of us. Now we got two of them. And we privilege to serve this great nation. That's okay, Brian. The people Brian. of America will stand with you. God bless the people of America. I yield the floor. 
You get the point. Did you watch that live? Anybody remember watching that live? What did you yell at the TV? What was that, friend? Yes. Yeah. My house, there was bleep, bleep, bleep. You've just killed us all. I mean, he had no idea of the context. And yet he did say it in the context, didn't he? And, <laughs> wow. You know, how does prophecy unfold? It is moments like that. And perhaps they're a little bit more dramatic than, than most. There are certainly other ways that it unfolds. And sometimes we're not aware but this so-called leader of the people said these words on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And it just wouldn't have even crossed my mind that he would have said the exact same words. Maybe he would, maybe he would say similar words, right, and, and reflect the same sentiment or ideas. But he actually said the real words. And even when there was a warning before it and a warning after it, he said, there's real words. Was that a fulfillment of prophecy? I'll leave it up to you to decide. There's certainly things that come after those arrogant words, right, that have not happened as, as far as we understand it. It's pretty clear. And those things have not happened yet, right, because, well, are those words said, and then the very next day, God brought this about? No. Even in the activities of ancient Israel, it was not, you know, immediately, unless it's specifically documented. But what's interesting is, I could not find an engagement where Rezin in Syria, I think Rezin was the king of Syria, came with the Philistines and devoured Israel. In fact, the stories of Rezin and leading Syria combining with Samaria, the ten golden tribes, and attacking Judah. But the clarity of that particular prophecy, it does not seem to have taken place yet. I don't know if this was prophecy being fulfilled, but I remember that day and sitting there in that moment, <laughs> yelling words at the TV in fear because I knew what the scripture meant. And I remember saying, you fool, you just killed us all. And yet we're still here, 20 years still here. 20 years, almost, have come and gone. And we've not been consumed by our enemies. And even in the history of Israel and Judah, as I said, things did not fully play out in this scenario. And so that indicates it's certainly future. But we can say with a fair amount of confidence that the preconditions that were in place in Israel 
that caused God to give that prophecy and caused his judgment to come on Israel are existing here today. And that's a very important for us to take away. When God interacts with man, he interacts consistently. God says, I change not. He has the same laws, the same principles, the same morals, and he has observed, surely, the same preconditions that we see in Israel are now here with us today. God continues to say in that same passage in verse 13, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off the head and the tail from Israel. Palm, uh, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err. And those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men. Nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. In judgment. When I read this scripture... In the context of doing this message, it sent really a chill up my spine because specifically the term, and every mouth speaks folly. And that is just something that is really hitting at least me in the face. I think it should be hitting us all in the face. On the, on the political sphere, it is absolute folly. And, and the word here in the Hebrew is, it means foolishness. It means senselessness. Nonsense. Nonsense. Regardless of what political side you're on. And yeah, it's a political, you know, it's an election year, and so we kind of just expect the airways and the media to be filled with lies. But why do we tolerate that? Why is that our expectation? Foolishness. I could pull all kinds of examples. I, I heard somebody say the other day that, well, you know, this is, uh, what was it? I built the greatest economy in the history of the United States. Everybody knows the president doesn't do a single thing about the economy. It is the people that run the businesses and the, the employees that work in the businesses. It's the people that generate the wealth in the economy. And yet somehow we have this false narrative that our political leaders can really do something about those things. And then, the one that really slapped me in the face was the confirmation hearing of, uh, of Coney Barrett. Again, regardless of what side you're on this political spectrum, when somebody says that sexual preference was an offensive term, and then the same day, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary online changes the definition of the word to that definition. It's foolishness. We are changing the meaning of words. Absolute foolishness. Based on what? The opinion of a single leader. Those that lead us cause us to err. 
It's right here. It's folly. It's nonsense. And there's so many other examples. I'm sure you're thinking of them. It's senselessness. And changing the meaning of words, and I know I've harped on about this a little bit (laughs) recently, but it is an absolute threat to everything we have. we treat language with such foolish contempt, we can't make sense of the world around us, can we? It's, it's, we might as well be speaking different languages. When one person says it means this and another person says it means that. Language and the meaning of words is at the heart of human civilization. So much so that God said, I don't like what's going on down there. I'm going to divide the languages so that he could break the power of people. Because they were not following his will, not following his way, and they were rejecting his leadership. Without a common understood language, there's no communication, there's no foundation, there's no ability to reason with one another. It becomes folly, foolishness. And we've read it before. Isaiah 59, verse 13 and transgressing and lying against the Lord, departing from, from our God and speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. That just describes the election season, this election cycle, like never before, on both sides. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the street. Equity cannot enter. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And there's a strong tie here, of course, with truth and justice. But the basis of all that is that we understand collectively together what words mean. Otherwise, we cannot have justice. And we certainly cannot have truth. But it shouldn't come to us as any great surprise, should it? We all do it. Every single one of us. We have our own version of the truth. We have our own version of what we tell ourselves to justify to ourselves the actions that we take in our life part of human nature. It is simply how we sin. We justify to ourselves, oh, it's okay for me to do this because of that. And change the meaning of words, change the, the meaning of truth and concepts in our own personal sin. James says it best, and sometime I'm really going to study this Because it just seems to me like what James says here in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, is the anatomy of sin. How sin gets born, grows up, and has its own kids. Because that's the imagery that he gives us here. He says, James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. How do you entice somebody? How do you entice somebody to do something that they didn't want to do? You use words. You use words to entice somebody. Well, if you do this, what did Satan do? God knows that you, you, know, you won't die when you eat that thing. No. Eat it. You'll be like him. We use words to entice. And we do it to ourselves. We're enticed by our own thinking, our own reasoning about how we are to behave. We give ourselves permission that it's okay to do this. And so then he says, when the desire is conceived, okay, now we're desiring it. And it's conceived almost like an organism, a life form is conceived. It gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So it's like this idea that, I don't know, maybe it's like the alien creature. Remember aliens? When it's, you know, that it, it, it's conceived and it grows and it becomes this creature that brings about our death. That happens in us. So it's no surprise that it happens to the world around us. Because that world is the product of our inner man. The human mind and heart sins out of a desire for something. We self-entice. Which includes the self-talk, self-justification. And then once the desire is conceived, the plan of action is made. And it gives birth to the action of sin. And when sin is allowed to grow up and become a fully functioning entity, it brings forth death. In Christ Jesus, we can put this to death, though. What the Apostle Paul tells us, I think, mortify the deeds of the flesh. We can put this to, to death in Christ Jesus before it grows up to maturity. But I think what we're seeing in the world around us today is that sin is fully grown and matured and is presented as public policy. Is presented as the law of the land in many different circumstances. And then an entire society conceives and births and raises up an organism of sin to corrupt moral principles of living. And this is when God steps in. He's gracious, isn't he? He, you know, he gave Israel his law and he gave them at the same time the process by which they can be redeemed from breaking that law. But when both are broken, God has no choice but to intervene. He cannot allow it to exist. This is what the leaders of the people of Israel fail to understand. And this is absolutely what our leaders fail to understand today. And so Isaiah, as he just said in Isaiah 9.16, For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. 
Now, I cannot say that on September 12, 2001, all of those things of that passage came to pass. But we do meet the same preconditions that Israel met. And so we have to ask ourselves very seriously, if the judgment of God came upon a people like us that met those preconditions, then when is he going to start to do his corrective work for us? And it's a work designed to get our attention, isn't it? It says right there that I want you to notice the one that's bringing that judgment so that you can come back to me. And so he can give us his mercy and grace. I'm not a prophet. We can read the prophets, as Ron Dart used to say. But even there, it's still obscured a little bit about what exactly happens and when. But something that is not obscured is what happens after the judgment of God. That is absolutely clear. Because in the middle of all of this judgment, in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 and into 10, we get a series of scriptures that seem to just kind of not fit with the theme. Because God doesn't want to leave us in this hopeless state. They, in fact, are scriptures that propel us forward into the future. In Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied a nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from, the, sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. I love this passage, and there's, there's certainly a lot historically going on and prophetically going on. But as I've done before, I want us to just focus on the, the good stuff in here that's for us. Because when I read this, I see each one of us. I see the church of God. Each one of us in Christ Jesus, we were walking in darkness. We were walking in that darkness. We were once without hope, but on us the light has shined. And I just really needed this in this time. Because there just seems to be so much darkness, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's been like this last week with rain and gloominess and darkness and then when the sun appears, it just lifts your spirits. Ah, oh, there's light. And it's warm. And it lifts us up. We were in that darkness. The light of Christ Jesus has shined on us. Just like the light, or better than the light outside, has shined on us. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we know it verbatim in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him 
Nothing was made that was made. And notice this critical point here. Words. Words created us. What would happen if those words didn't mean what they meant? How could God create us from words if there was no meaning to words? And no power in words. Words convey truth. They convey love. They convey the plans of creation and the plans of salvation. We were made by the spoken word of God. God spoke us into existence. He spoke everything into existence. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. What that means there. Overcome it. The light cannot be overcome by the darkness. Simply not possible. And I get it. We're all living under this cloud, the shadow of anxiety, of uncertainty, of fear, of disagreement, the election, the coronavirus, all their dark consequences. It might feel like it's putting out the light. But we, we don't need to I'll let it. I don't need to let it. The only way we put out the light is to close our eyes. It cannot put out the light. It will not put out the light. The light of Christ Jesus has shone in our hearts. So in the midst of this anxiety, I'm not saying I've got the magic solution to make it all go away. But we can be lifted up by the light, renewed by this light from Christ Jesus, bathe ourselves in that light. John says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent bear, to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And that's a strange way that the King James puts that. And I was like, I've never really been happy about how that reads. It just doesn't seem clear to me. So the New Living Translation puts it this way. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus gives us the light. He doesn't just by default give it to everyone in the world. That's how it feels like to me that King James is saying it. He's saying John was announcing that we can get the light from Jesus Christ because the light is coming into the world to give it to us. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth just dwell on that that we have been filled with his light filled with that glory that regardless of what our leaders are doing around us regardless of the stresses of the world around us we can go to this place and we can bathe ourselves in the light of Christ Jesus that he has shone in our hearts so we are the ones as the scripture said as Isaiah said on whom the light has shined let me read that again in Isaiah chapter, chapter 9 and verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. He's made us this new nation. His own didn't receive him, but as many as did receive him have been made into this new nation, multiplied in this harvest. We should rejoice at this. You know, we should find moments to rejoice every day in the knowledge that Christ Jesus has shone on us and shines in our hearts. In our hearts, we were once in darkness—darkness darkness of our own corrupt words, of our own negative self-talk. We were stealing light from ourselves. Every single one of us were. We were kind of on, on our own road to Damascus, weren't we? Until Christ Jesus shone in our hearts. So we should rejoice at this truth. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing easier said than done count it all joy in the middle of trials and I'm not saying in any way shape or form that I have perfected that but I think I am learning finally to just be patient and let God do his work then I'll find the joy we just want to rush through it. We want to rush through that trial. We want to get to the end of it, right? We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to endure what we're enduring. Let's get to the end of this. But he has a plan of building patience in us. Count it all joy. That's hard. But it's certainly a lot harder, isn't it, when we try and do it in our own strength instead of letting God do it in us. We need to listen, drink in the words of Jesus, as the song says, the words that he's singing over us. It's a casting crown song, the voice of truth, right? Need that voice of truth. And listen to the sound of Jesus singing over us. We're no longer in battle. In fact, in Isaiah, we see that the battle is finished. 
and they're celebrating. And, and the sandals and the, the uniforms, the cloaks. He says, you've broken the yoke of his burden and the staff on his shoulder, the rod of oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. There's no more battle out there ahead of us in the future. And then we come to this more succinct promise of the future of all of this mess on this earth. We come to what we long for. What the purpose of all of this is. He says this. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. We're experiencing the exact opposite of this right now. Peace is absent. Justice is absent. And while our leaders, our counselors, <laughs> they're far from wonderful. They are the opposite. But think about the world that Isaiah has just told us about. There will be no end to peace. No end to peace. That's almost impossible to imagine. There'll be no end to justice. There'll be no end to the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of God. And at the center of all this is the word of God. The word made flesh that came as a child, grew up as a man, and died for us. And then raised again to take up that throne of God. That's the light that shone in our hearts. That beautiful light who is our wonderful counselor, our advisor, our guide, our mighty God, our everlasting father, it says, which is an interesting concept all by itself. And who is our Prince of Peace. This is what we long for. This is what we want to rejoice in. This is the light that we should bathe in every day. Every day. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son of, is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we finally have this again, or finally have this fully, we've never really experienced this, we will have that lasting peace. And we will have that new birth of freedom that Abraham Lincoln looked for. Brethren, let's take this joy, let's take this light and share it. And let's bathe ourselves in this, even in the dark world. If we do, the world will not overcome us.
It can't, because it cannot overcome the light of Christ in it.